This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and adventurous political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today, including many authored by guests who have appeared here on this podcast. N Plus One's new issue, Savior Complex, is now available in print and online, and is full of great pieces that are perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Kienga Yamada Taylor's Predatory Inclusion, an excerpt from her new National Book Award-nominated Race for Profit. You may have heard Taylor here on The Dig, discussing Black Liberation, Criminal Justice, Howard Zinn, or the Combahee River Collective. In her new book, she traces the history of homeownership incentives in the late 60s, when the 1968 Fair Housing Act offered new alternatives to the racially exclusionary zoning and housing patterns that had previously existed for African Americans. But, Taylor writes, quote, Placing homeownership at the heart of the nation's low-income housing policies ceded outsized influence and control to the real estate industry over dwellings intended to serve a disproportionately African-American market. Taylor demonstrates that the real estate practices that emerged, in tandem with the fraud and conspiracy at the heart of the Federal Housing Administration, were coercive, regressive, and continued a pattern of racist housing policy that persists today. Taylor writes, quote, The assumption that a mere reversal of exclusion to inclusion would upend decades of institutional discrimination underestimated the extent to which the housing economy was organized around race and property. This month, Dig listeners can take 25% off a year subscription to N Plus One. Go to nplus1.com slash the dig to subscribe and enter the dig, one word, at checkout. You'll get three issues plus full access to the magazine's online archive and free entry to readings and events, all for less than $3 a month. That's N P L U S O N E M A G dot com slash the dig welcome to the dig a podcast from jacobin magazine my name is daniel denver and i'm broadcasting from providence rhode island American exceptionalism is the notion that this country represents a geographical and historical anomaly, free but also powerful, equal but also prosperous, that the United States is the exception that sets the standard and makes the rules. Exceptionalism has deeply shaped relations amongst the nations of this hemisphere, offering a ready ideology for imperial intervention, and a noxious pretext for economic inequality. But the disparities that divide the Americas are real and significant. The U.S. has long sat atop a global and regional order that consigns much of Latin America to the export of primary goods, 
The U.S. has subjected country after country to violent intervention, supporting oligarchs from El Salvador to Chile, crushing left revolts that hope to overthrow the U.S.-led order and build something new in its place. This state of affairs is so pervasive that it has come to seem natural, inevitable, as inescapable as it is unfortunate. My guest, Joshua Simon, casts this normal-seeming present as strange by recounting its history. The United States and the nations of Latin America began their independent lives in remarkably similar circumstances. British and Spanish America were both settler colonial projects, and it was settler elites who led independence movements and toppled European imperial rule throughout the hemisphere. The revolutions that we celebrate today from U.S. to Argentina were not launched just to secure freedom, but to secure freedom of a particular sort, the freedom to maintain the privileges and dominance that criollos, or creoles, the descendants of European settlers born in the Americas, enjoyed and exercised over the black and indigenous people their predecessors had conquered and exploited for centuries. The divide between an Anglo-United States and Spanish Latin America seems so ordinary today, given the U.S.'s role as the imperial guarantor of Pan-American oligarchy, and the fact that decades of the stigmatization and demonization of Latin American immigrants in the U.S. has reached a terrifying apotheosis in the presidency of Donald Trump. In so many ways, the U.S. has become defined as not Latin America. But Josh shows that today's reality was not inevitable, and thus suggests that the future might be different too. Since we are stepping so far back in history and looking at so many different places across the Western Hemisphere whose shapes and names have changed over the years, I want to provide a quick guide to the interview. The polities that Josh looks at were British North America, which became the United States, New Spain, which became Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica, and Venezuela, Nueva Granada, and Peru, which became Venezuela, Colombia, Panama, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia. And Josh looks in particular at three Creole leaders, Alexander Hamilton in the United States, Lucas Alemán in Mexico, and Simón Bolívar in what was briefly a Gran Colombia covering much of northern South America. In all of these cases, Josh argues, British and Spanish America in the late 18th and early 19th century were both led by Creoles occupying a similar social position. And so, whatever their particular philosophical tradition, and whatever they thought they believed what they believed, they shared a worldview guided by a drive to cast off European rule from the outside while securing their own elite rule on the inside. Hamilton, Aleman, and Bolivar all believed that this required a project of expansion and federation to build states strong enough to hold their own in a world system run by European empires. Hamilton, Aleman, and Bolivar all wanted the same thing. But in retrospect, 
Only the United States built the empire that it wanted. As I discussed with Adam Getacho last week, anti-colonial nationalists from across the Black Atlantic counterintuitively looked to the U.S.'s success as a model for their own dream of using federation to achieve decolonization. But as Adam noted, it's an awkward model to embrace given that the U.S. used federation to make empire. And because that, in turn, reflects a seeming tendency for expansive polities to be centralized and undemocratic ones. What Josh shows is that the United States' neocolonial rule over Latin America was born in a clash that was not initially between the colonizer and the colonized, but rather between rival settler colonial projects. If we want to decolonize the Americas today, this is useful history to understand. Before we get this thing started, I'm pausing briefly to ask for you to support this podcast with a small portion of your money at patreon.com slash the dig. We are overwhelmingly dependent upon listeners making small donations to keep this podcast up and running. That's how The Dig can be my full-time job, and how I can pay the people who help make the show happen every week. The main reason you should support this show is because we are dedicated to making it free to everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. And that's because the point of the show is to help all of you, all over the world, listening to it, to better understand the world in order to change it. But that said, we also have free left-wing books to send you in the mail as a thank you for your donation, including an exceptional new book written by four past dig guests that comprehensively explains the politics of both the climate crisis and of overcoming it. A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal by Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Aldana-Cohen, and Thea Riofrancos. If you rely on us for analysis, please know that we, in turn, rely on you for your support. And so please, support us with whatever you can. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Joshua Simon, a professor of political science at Columbia University and the author of The Ideology of Creole Revolution, Imperialism and Independence in American and Latin American Political Thought. Joshua Simon, welcome to The Dig. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We tend to think of Latin America and the United States as such different places, and not for no reason. Latin America, of course, has long been subordinated both politically and economically to a U.S.-run world and regional system and subject, of course, to frequent U.S. intervention. 
Meanwhile, inside the U.S., the demonization of Latin American migrants has become a core feature of domestic politics here. But you write that in the late 18th and early 19th century, when European descendant elites across the hemisphere threw off European rule, that those elites' position and mindset were actually quite similar. To start things off, explain your overall argument about who the Creole revolutionaries were and what they wanted. Well, I like that framing because what it gets to is a central argument of the book, which is that the present dispositions of wealth and of power across the Americas, throughout the Western Hemisphere, uh, are not inevitable. Uh, There were moments in the history of both the domestic politics of each of the American states and of inter-American politics in which alternative futures were possible. And the book is in large measure an effort to recover some of those alternative futures, particularly by identifying the commonalities present in both the ideas of the American independence movements, meaning both the United States and the nations of Spanish America, and in the social structures of those colonial societies that produce those movements and their associated ideas. So the argument of the book is that the American independence movements are both more similar to one another and less similar to the non-American independence movements and other revolutions with which they're often compared. The American revolutions are similar in the sense that they are Creole revolutions. They are revolutions that were formed and led by the descendants of European settlers in the New World. And the fact that these Creoles, uh, these descendants of European settlers in the in the New World, led the American independence movements, produced a particular way of thinking about independence, about the wrongs of imperial rule, about the constitutions that could maintain independence after uh, revolutions had been fought, and about how foreign policy should be conducted uh, that I call uh, the ideology of Creole revolution. Use of the word Creole in this way is a bit novel. How did you come to decide that this terminology was necessary to denaturalize this false sense of difference between Anglo and Spanish settler colonialists? And also, why did you decide against using the perhaps more politically potent term settler, given that these European descendant elites were engaged in a settler colonialist project? Well, I would say that my use of the term is unusual, but not necessarily novel. The the term Creole uh, has its roots in a Spanish term, criollo, uh, and it meant originally in the in that usage, which is traceable to the 16th century, precisely the way that I use the term to describe a person of European descent born in the colonies of the New World. Now, you're quite right, though, to say that in English today, the term Creole is usually used to denominate other cultures, other languages, other populations than that population of descendants of settlers. Uh, It's uh, used in particular to describe uh, French, uh, former French colonies of the United States and uh, the Caribbean. So I'm adopting an older use of the term 
in it's a use of the term that still prevails in the literature in the literature on Latin American history to describe this population of the descendants of settlers uh, to describe now also the population, the protagonists of the independence movement of the United States. So in a sense, what I'm trying to do is apply, is apply a description that is regularly used to describe Latin America to uh, uh, the United States. And in that sense, as you put it very nicely, I think, kind of denaturalize the distinctions that are drawn. I can mention here as well that my use of this term in this way uh, follows on the usage of uh, a scholar of comparative literature and comparative politics, Benedict Anderson, who uh, used this used this term precisely that way in his book, Imagined Communities. And why not settler? Good. Well, obviously, the work I do in this book, the way I conceptualize the place of Creoles within the colonies of the New World, uh, the way I characterize their politics, and in particular the conflicts inherent in their politics, conflicts on the one hand between metropolitan regimes and with non-white uh, populations in the colonies, takes a lot from this literature on settler colonialism. Uh, it's an important source of inspiration for me. But I had a couple of problems with the literature on settler colonialism that I wanted to bring out by adopting a different term. The first problem maybe is that in, ma in many respects, that literature on settler colonialism incorporates some of the divisions, uh, some of the limits uh, that I'm trying to overcome. So that that term settler colonialism is most frequently applied to the former British colonies uh, of the United States, of uh, the Antipodes, Australia and New Zealand, uh, to South Africa in particular, and occasionally to uh, settler colonial projects elsewhere in the world, particularly perhaps in Palestine. And although the Spanish colonies of the New World also settled enormous populations of Europeans, also involved conflictual relationships between the Spanish metropole and the indigenous and Afro-descended populations of the New World, the Spanish colonies are rarely grouped into this heading of settler colonialism, uh, rarely described using that framework. Uh, so I wanted to kind of signal, again, uh, a break with these frameworks that divide the Americas, that strongly distinguish the processes that are taking place in these independence movements by adopting a term uh, that could be applied equally to both rather than one that is applied usually only to the Anglo portions of the world. I think one more perhaps substantive reason, less invested in the literature, uh, is that these, these populations that I'm describing, these Creole revolutionaries, they are settlers, yes. They are descendants of people who crossed the Atlantic, descendants of people who expropriated indigenous land, and they themselves were engaged in projects of territorial expansion, uh, expropriation. But they were at the same time defined by the fact of their transatlantic birth uh, and several of the kind of institutional constraints they encountered, constraints upon the positions they could occupy within the governments that, that ruled them, constraints that they encountered in social and economic interactions, uh, or consequences precisely of having been born on the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, and so I find Creole captures really the kind of contradictory qualities of the institutional position that these 
thinkers and insurgents, patriots uh, that I'm trying to describe. I want to talk about the three particular Creole leaders that you focus on in the book and the different thinkers they were drawing on to give people a sense of what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the interview. In What Becomes the U.S., we have Alexander Hamilton, who was most of all inspired by the Scottish philosopher David Hume, who was extremely pessimistic about particular interests in politics ruining the general interest. And then in South America, Simón Bolívar drew on classical Republican philosophy philosophy about freedom requiring non-domination. In New Spain, which became Mexico, there was Lucas Alemán, who looked to Edmund Burke, the archetypal conservative critic of the French Revolution, who warned against the chaos unleashed by massive changes to the social order. How was it that each of these leaders were inspired by these different philosophers, yet articulated such similar proposals? Yeah, part of what I am attempting to establish in this book is that the ideas that animated the independence movements in the Americas are reflections of the institutional circumstances that the protagonists, these Creoles, uh, found themselves in, in the late stages of European rule of the New World. And in order to establish that, in order to argue that it's this institutional situation that causes them to think in the way that they did, I tried to separate out what other people encountering these ideas might argue are potential causes of the ideas that I describe. So one potential source of influence, of course, is precisely intellectual influence. What philosophers, what figures were the leaders of these independence movements reading? What concepts were they using? What ideas were they invoking as they made their arguments concerning the wrongs of imperial rule, concerning the best forms of constitution for newly independent societies, and concerning the foreign policies that these new nations should adopt. Uh, and what I want to show, essentially, is that some of the reason why we've had trouble in debates about, is the American independence movement a liberal revolution or a republican one, and so on, are because there were diverse sources of philosophical influence at play in the Americas in the independence movements. And different figures uh, who participated in these independence movements drew upon distinct intellectual traditions. So one of the factors that played into my choice of these three figures is precisely that they were influenced by very different intellectual traditions, different European intellectual traditions. Uh, and as you say, yes, Hamilton... Uh, a student of David Hume and more broadly of the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, uh, concerned with how institutions shaped the interests of the people who lived under them and how institutions might serve better or worse in their ability to channel fundamentally self-interested actors to pursue a common good uh, despite the fact that their individual interests were paramount drivers of their own behavior. By contrast, Simon Bolivar, influenced by a tradition of classical republicanism, I wouldn't necessarily use the term non-domination. Uh, it's a sort of a later description of that tradition. For Simon Bolivar, 
Uh, classical republicanism meant fundamentally that the drivers of political flourishing or political ruin are, were the virtues or vices of the leaders and the led, the rulers and the ruled. And to the extent that virtue could be cultivated, virtuous leaders arise and rule virtuous populaces, societies would flourish. Meanwhile, the converse of virtue, corruption, would lead to the dissolution, destruction, and disappearance of political societies. And these were the fundamental terms in which he discussed. Is it Republican in the the sense not of non-domination, but of independence versus dependence and the virtues related to those two... Yes, absolutely. The relational the, statuses. The ideal for the classical Republican tradition that Simon Bolivar drew upon was independence, resisting subjection to foreign rule, which was a problem in the Greek city states that kind of gave rise to this mode of thinking, which was a problem in the Italian city states that refined that mode of thinking, uh, and which was obviously a problem in the colonies of the New World. Maintaining, gaining, and maintaining independence uh, is the ideal. Uh, and as you say, Luca Salomon, finally deeply influenced by Edmund Burke and by this kind of, yes, archetypal, but similar, but still subtle conservatism, which is not averse to all forms of change, but is deeply averse to radical revolutionary change and both of the kind exemplified in the French Revolution and for Luca Salomon in the insurgency, the indigenous and mixed-race insurgency that preceded the uh, independence of Mexico. So the argument then is that despite these distinctive intellectual influences, despite the different languages they spoke in, the different concepts that they drew upon, the different ideals really that they thought that uh, could be pursued in politics, uh, we still nonetheless see these three figures converge upon very similar accounts of the wrongs involved in empire, in European imperial rule of the Americas. We see them converge upon similar recommendations as to what forms of constitution might best uh, preserve the newly independent states of the Americas against both external and internal threats. And we see them converge upon similar accounts of how these new nations should relate to one another and to the rest of the world. And the argument then is that that convergence, those similarities, must be a reflection of the institutional position that they shared rather than of the intellectual influences that distinguished them. So to what extent did the specifics of their ideas really matter if ideas were and are, as you argue, in significant part determined by power relations? That's a great question and a very deep one, uh, one that anybody who kind of thinks about political ideas in this way has to encounter. I think political ideas matter in the sense that I, I would never suggest that the arguments that they make are identical, that their ideas are the same. And, and I spend quite a lot of time tracing actually the influence that we can see of these distinct intellectual traditions in the ideologies that emerge from Alexander Hamilton in the United States, from Simón Bolívar in Venezuela and Colombia, and from Lucas Alemán in Mexico. Uh, so these different intellectual traditions definitely lend different flavors, different colors, at times very different arguments to their 
thinking and to their actions. But at the same time, yes, I think ultimately the arguments that they make are the arguments that they make because of the problems that they confronted and the, those problems emerge, especially from the from the institutional situation that they found themselves in, the uh, threats that they perceived to their local superiority from the indigenous and the Afro-descended populations of the New World and to their kind of global autonomy from the European empires of the New World. So ideas matter. Uh, they definitely influence the way we think and talk and act. Uh, but at the same time, they matter always in a way that is refracted through the institutional circumstances in which political thinkers use, deploy, adapt existing ideas to serve the purposes that they find themselves uh, pursuing. Your argument that, that ideas and ideology emerge out of conflicts over power means that the contradictions within those ideologies aren't so much a puzzle for us to solve, but rather a reflection of broader institutional and political economic contradictions. You write, quote, contradictions are not a result of the ideas themselves, but of the interests that they were developed to defend and of the institutions that structured those interests. To what extent is your analysis a Marxist one in terms of your analysis of ideology? And to what extent does it depart from a Marxist analysis? Well, the, to take the latter part of the question first, the approach that I adopt is fundamentally Marxist. It's a conception of ideology as a superstructure, a reflection of the material structure uh, of the world, the conflicts that different dispositions of wealth and power cause amongst people uh, who have different allotments of wealth and power in any given society. And that conceives of ideas as a, a structure in the world that classes, both dominant classes and insurgent classes, use in their struggle with one another in order to uh, achieve the institutional arrangements that they find advantageous to themselves. But I introduce certain revisions to the classic Marxian analysis of ideology that I think makes it more flexible in general and in particular makes it capable of capturing the classes at conflict in the independence movements of the new world and thus of explaining the ideas that emerge from those independence movements. So first, Marx strictly distinguishes between material structures of the economy social formations defined by modes of production, and argues that these are primary drivers of first-class conflict and thus of superstructures, which include not only ideas, but also for Marx, laws, and political institutions. These are all superstructures on his account, which are determined by this primary division located in the economic divisions of society. Without needing to enter into the at times arcane, other times uh, <laughs> without, at times arcane, at other times uh, productive debates about what that means exactly for one sort of division to be primary, to be the determinant in the last instance, as the terminology often goes. I argue that for purposes of explaining the conflicts in the independence movements in the Americas, 
uh, for purposes of explaining those ideas, it is helpful to relax that assumption of final instance determination by classes defined by their relation to the means of production, and instead allow political institutions, and in particular, the institutions that comprised European imperial rule of the Americas, to create class divisions and to drive class conflicts. So I have in mind here institutions that allotted power between political assemblies in the metropoles, in London, in Madrid, in Sevilla, at different points, and the capitals of the colonies of the New World. I have in mind here institutions that divided power between and different kinds of inhabitants of the colonies of the New World, between Creoles, the descendants of European settlers, and peninsulares, or Spaniards who had traveled to the New World, or our Britons who were present in the New World as colonial administrators or traders, and also between Creoles and African-descended populations, including enslaved populations and free populations of, of Afro-descended peoples, and between Creoles and indigenous populations of the New World and mixed-race populations of the New World. So we have in mind here institutions that create these divisions, which are not primarily or in the last instance related to the means of production and to uh, the economy, but are fundamentally political. And, and that, so that is a one fundamental revision that I make to Marx's account of ideology. The other one, uh, which really just follows on some Marxian social science, though not necessarily anticipated by Marx himself, uh, is to argue that we can't always think of class divisions as binary and polarized. Class societies are not necessarily always divided between a ruling class and a ruled class. Marx himself anticipated this in his actual descriptions of most societies, but much of his kind of analytic framework seems to suggest a polarized binary conception of class conflict. In part, that's because that's what he saw emerging in front of him. That's right. And he thought that capitalism more than anything clarified these all these class fractions and was more and more resolving these European societies into class uh, societies divided by a polarized binary class structure. Uh, and he was right that in 19th century Europe, that capitalism did seem to be doing that in, in dissolving the middle class. But little did he know the role that the middle class would play, say, in like mid 20th century American capitalism. That's exactly right. And so in order to account for the position of the middle class in mid 20th century American capitalism, several Marxist social scientists especially Eric Olin Wright, described this idea of a contradictory class location, of a social class that is in some sense a member of the uh, ruling bourgeois capital-owning class and is in other senses a member of the proletariat working class. And Eric Olin Wright had in particular kind of middle management, maybe professionals, people who were difficult to classify as either bourgeois or proletarian capitalist or labor. But I find that concept very useful in describing the social position of Creoles in the European empires of the New World. Creoles were, in a way, settlers. They were the kind of advance guard of European imperialism in the world. They were invested in the project of spreading European empires across the Americas. But they were, in another sense, 
colonized. They were subjected to European imperial rule. They were denied access to certain political positions, certain social uh, opportunities, economic opportunities. Uh, and they, re they deeply resented those exclusions and limitations on their lives. So they occupied precisely this kind of contradictory class position. They were neither colonizers nor colonized, but in some sense, both. Uh, and I think that that understanding, that contradictory institutional position they occupied uh, is really helpful in understanding their ideas, particularly if we want to think of those ideas as an ideology, a, a reflection of the circumstances that they found themselves in. Yeah, because th those two positions that they found themselves in deeply informed one another. It was their very elite status within American society that that fueled their resentment at being subjected to rule by overseas elites. And that's exactly right. And many of the features of that rule that they were most concerned to contest are features that threatened their predominance, their uh, their elite status within the colonies themselves. So threats that included imposed limits upon their ability to take new land, threats that imposed limits upon their ability to exploit the labor of indigenous or African-descended populations, policies that seemed to blur the lines between the European-descended and the indigenous or Afro-descended populations of the New World. Uh, the Spanish uh, regime was in moments of penury, in moments of budgetary crisis, uh, sold, sold certificates that attested to the purity of blood of their bearers and thus allowed non-white inhabitants of their colonies in the New World to claim the privileges of whiteness. Uh, uh, and this was these perceived. are the pardos or mi free mixed race Americans. That's right. So they would sell these certificates, sedulous, that attested to whiteness. And this this practice of selling whiteness uh, was perceived by the Creole populations of Venezuela, in particular, to be a a really a deep threat to their social position that it promised to undermine the privileges that they enjoyed precisely on the basis of being a European descended population. And so these independence movements are throughout the Americas efforts to halt, to roll back policies that would undermine the privileged position that these Creoles enjoyed in their colonies. You write the, the result of these contradictions was an ideology of anti-imperial imperialism. And Bolivar sets it out succinctly. Quote, We are neither Indians nor Europeans, but a species midway between the legitimate owners of the land and the Spanish usurpers. Being American by birth and Europeans by right, we must both dispute the claims of natives and resist external invasion. Thus, we find ourselves in the most extraordinary and complicated situation. And Bolivar also argued that under Spanish rule, Creoles, quote, were not only deprived of their freedom, but also of an active tyranny. Explain this ideology a little more and why they had almost necessarily, because of their position, had to embrace a form of anti-imperialism that actually required imperialism. An, an active tyranny of their own. Those are just lovely quotes. Uh, yeah, in a powerful. sense, uh, Bolivar recognizing in this moment 
the situation that he faced. It's not by happenstance. I think that particular quote uh, appeared for the first time. Bolivar actually repeats that phrase, uh, species in between, uh, in a couple of different writings. But it appears for the first time in 1815 in a piece that is called the Jamaica Letter. It's a newspaper article. It was originally a private correspondence, which was later published as a newspaper article, in which Bolivar recounts why an effort to achieve independence in the northern part of South America has failed. His revolution has been rolled back, uh, and it was rolled back in particular by, by this uh, Lance Cavalry Force that was comprised of Pardo, or mixed-race inhabitants of the eastern plains of Venezuela. And so Bolivar is struggling to explain what has gone wrong, uh, why the revolution has not succeeded, why Venezuela is not independent but has been once again subjected to Spanish rule, and he recognizes this extraordinary and complicated situation, that he is fighting this revolution on behalf of a, a species in between, a a colonial elite, which is simultaneously dominant in its local context and and dominant specifically over populations who might object to their gaining more power, who see nothing to be gained, actually, in uh, the rise of Creoles to total uh, sovereignty in these colonies. After all, Creole, Creoles had rioted against the Spanish abolition of the encomienda, or, or the right to forced indigenous labor. I mean, they, they, they have a lived experience of what Creole rule That's absolutely like. right. And even more approximately, had, had lived, lived themselves under Creole rulers uh, throughout the period leading up to the independence movement. So the idea of independence was much more, much very ambivalently received, uh, at times very actively opposed by the non-Creole populations of these colonies, and not just the Spanish and not just the British populations, but the enslaved uh, and free African populations and the indigenous populations. So this idea, anti-imperial imperialism, uh, with that idea, I try to capture what I see as the central contradiction in the ideology of Creole revolution. And it's a contradiction that you can see reflected in the various phases of these independence movements. So that you have accounts of the wrongs of imperialism, which indict not empire itself, not just rule uh, in a hierarchical differentiated fashion, but hierarchies and differentiations that limit the prospects of Creoles in particular, uh, and that abridge the rights of Creoles in particular. And you find constitutions that, even as they seek to empower, claim to be based on popular sovereignty, seek to empower populations to make the rules by which they rule themselves, impose strong limitations upon the populations in order to preclude excessive influence from the heterogeneous populations that actually comprised uh, the New World, uh, the Americas. Uh, and you see foreign policies, approaches to foreign policies, that make empire a tool of maintaining independence. So that Bolivar, another famous phrase of Bolivar's when he's contemplating leading his army, comprised mainly of soldiers from New Granada, which is now Colombia, into Peru. Uh, and the question that he encounters is, can I justifiably lead an army of conquest in order to throw off Spanish rule? And he says, if I don't go there, the enemy will come here. 
So I am, of course, unjustified in doing so. So empire, conquest, spreading territorial rule of these incipient republics is the only way to maintain their independence. And so you see this very close association in the thinking in all the phases of these independence movements between measures that we might want to describe as anti-imperial and measures that we want to describe clearly as imperial. Creole leaders, in, in other words, were certainly not arguing or fighting for what we might today conceive of as decolonization, which would have meant an end to the settler colonial project. Is it fair to say that they were arguing and fighting for an intensification of that settler colonial project under Creole leadership? Or is that too simplistic an account? Or does it kind of depend on what part of the Americas we're talking about? I think it does depend. And I do think that Something important would be lost in our account of these ideas if we wrote them off as entirely efforts to intensify, radicalize the colonial project. The anti-imperial aspect of these ideas is also important. The invocations of accounts of rights, invocation of accounts of institutions that incorporated more popular participation, the notion of a international politics of solidarity against imperial rule, these are not just decorations. They are integral aspects of the ideology of Creole imperialism. They are deeply in tension with other aspects of that ideology, but they are not completely hollowed out by that tension. They are not completely evacuated of their emancipatory, egalitarian tendency by their coupling with these at times different and at times opposed tendencies in these revolutions. So I think we would be, it would be overstating the case to say that this is always and everywhere an attempt to, to intensify the settler colonial regime, not least because these Creole revolutions put these ideas into the air that critics precisely of their regimes could mobilize in order to attack features of the uh, regimes that the Creoles established, so that some of these famous invocations of rights and so on would later be taken up, adapted, and mobilized to attack precisely the kinds of exclusions, uh, limitations uh, that Creoles sought to impose upon the non-white inhabitants of the New World, of the Americas. In terms of that that tension, perhaps the core ideological contradiction there is that Creole revolutionaries justified their re revolt both on the basis of their particular rights as the descendants of European peoples and also through this appeal to universal rights that might perhaps seemingly apply to, well, everybody. Why, if these elites' needs and interests were so particular, did they feel the need to articulate a universal politics? And what were the implications of these Creole elites declaring independence on behalf of a we they did not, in fact, represent, but in fact, often oppressed? I think that many of these famous invocations of universal rights, the famous invocation uh, that decorates the Declaration of Independence in the United States, and that you can find in declarations of independence written throughout the Americas, uh, invocations of similar ideas about 
uh, rights of man, inalienable rights uh, that are common features of uh, the revolutionary discourse in this period, again, are not empty. They were heartfelt. They were sincere. They were reflections of the intellectual traditions that these Creole revolutionaries drew upon. They were ideas that they endorsed. But there are, as you say, all of these interesting moments when these Creole, these ideologues of Creole revolution are kind of pushed. And well, what do you exactly mean? So there's this particularly interesting episode, actually, in Mexico. Uh, the figure who I uh, study, Lucas Alamán, uh, is present in a constituent assembly who's debating rules for for the franchise, who will be enfranchised to vote in newly independent Mexico, and debates about universal manhood uh, suffrage versus debates about other forms of limitation based on property or based on racial purity are being debated. And these ideas about universal rights are being invoked. And, and Lucas Alemán pushes back very strongly on that idea and defines an alternative source of the rights that grounded the independence movements and that uh, should animate the constitutionalism of the newly independent regimes. And that source of rights was specific to the Creole populations of the New World. So a discussion then turned to the, and this is common in North America, in British North America as well, to the compacts that are concluded between the Spanish monarchy and the conquistadors of the New World, concessions made to the conquistadors and their descendants, concessions concerning rights to rule indigenous populations, rights to exploit the labor of indigenous populations, rights to exploit the labor of African populations. Uh, As a reward for the conquest that they've perpetrated on behalf of the crown. Exactly. So when you see push comes to shove, when the universal rights claims are challenged, uh, when their implications are actually drawn out, Creoles often fell back upon these alternative conceptions of rights which were grounded in the conquest of the New World, that our forefathers won the rights that we are now claiming by crossing the Atlantic. They carried rights with them across the Atlantic as Englishmen and as Spaniards, and they won new rights by overcoming the indigenous populations of the New World, by staking claims to these territories. And it's on those rights that we contest the policies of the present Spanish regime, that we contest the policies of the present British regime. And it's those rights that we fought this war for. And it's really those rights that we need to write constitutions now uh, to protect. So you had this kind of middle ground staged uh, between a universal conception of rights born by people as, as people, and a kind of very particular conception of rights uh, born by kind of individuals on the basis of their own biographies, a middle ground was staged uh, of rights born by Creoles as Creoles, specifically as the descendants of the conquerors of the New World. One of your core points is that Anglo-North American and Spanish-Latin American revolutionary leaders initially did not want independence at all, but rather they just wanted to be treated on par with their compatriots in the motherland. In fact, the Anglo-American criticism was initially not lodged against the king, but against parliament, which represented only people in Britain. And so Anglo-North Americans wanted more monarchy because parliamentary rule subjected Creole elites to enslavement by British elites, whereby the monarch would be a more neutral force representing all of the empire. 
in New Spain, Creole leaders like Aleman wanted representation, similarly, on par with Spanish elites. And he, with the hindsight of looking back at the American Revolution, argued that these sorts of reforms would be necessary to ensure that what had happened in British North America didn't happen in New Spain. These revolutions, in other words, as you've mentioned before, were not by any means inevitable. Why couldn't the metropole accommodate American Creole elites as equal subjects? And what can we learn now from the fact that Creole elites wanted until so very late in the game to remain subjects of of their respective crowns? It's absolutely true that before independence became the determined aim of these movements, these independence movements, uh, the aim was something much more modest, was a reform to the institutions of the European empires that would give Creoles both more autonomy in the governance of internal American affairs and give Creoles more voice in the policies that governed the empires as wholes. So in a sense, what was the idea in the early stages of these independence movements was a sort of a commonwealth, uh, what we now call a commonwealth, uh, in which these territories are linked by common institutions, the common institution in particular of the monarchy, the British monarchy, Spanish monarchy, but would in substantial respects rule themselves. So why, when Americans presented these demands to the metropoles, to Britain and to Spain, were Britons and Spaniards unwilling to concede that form of autonomy to the Americans? It's a great question, a difficult one to answer, hard to get inside the heads of the decision makers here. I think they were, the British in particular, were concerned with the economic costs of their empire in this period. They had just finished fighting a very expensive war to preserve uh, their North American colonies. They were uh, expanding. And British North Americans were very proud of their contribution, but the the British crown and parliament were not actually so impressed. Right, exactly. Well, yes, American (laughs) colonists had thought that they had kind of tipped the balance of the war, uh, but the British were more prone to emphasizing the hesitation with which American colonists joined the British forces and the hesitation with which colonial assemblies appropriated funds to to support the war effort. Uh, so there was a major division that takes place right after this war. Uh, and the British become convinced that the only way to make their empire profitable, the only way to make it stable against the threats that it was facing in in primary part from other empires operating on the North American continent was to not give greater autonomy, but the reverse, to impose a greater, more stringent imperial oversight of these colonies. Uh, so that was their evaluation of the situation. And I think that is the source of their resistance to ideas about Commonwealth solutions to this American problem. In Spain, you have an uh, interesting uh, development as well. A just wildly chaotic situation. That's right. uh, In Europe. That's right. Napoleon marches across Spain ostensibly uh, to deal with the British in Portugal. Uh, But while he's there, he deposes the king of Spain, (laughs) installs his brother as king, 
and really causes a chaotic situation, uh, you know, famously depicted in those Francisco Goya paintings of uh, the Spanish resistance to Napoleon's rule of just these dark scenes of, of slaughter and execution. So there, the Spanish, in efforts to organize this resistance to Napoleon, to, Napo to the rule of Joseph Bonaparte, uh, call an assembly, and they take the extra step of inviting participation from uh, the Americas, from the Spanish colonies of Spain in, in the Americas. Uh, that's how they view it, that they're, that they're actually being inclusive. That's right. They were being, well, they were being more inclusive than Britain. And that was very self-conscious. You had commentators, both in Spain and in the Americas, saying, well, look, this is how Britain lost their empire, by refusing to concede any representation to the Americas in their metropolitan assemblies. So Spain here is taking this practical, this very pragmatic concession giving the America some representation in order to head off precisely the kind of resentment that results in the British, uh, the independence of the British colonies in North America. Uh, but the Spaniards are unable to kind of go all the way. They allow only very limited representation of the Americas in their assembly. This ends up, I think, of anything, kind of heightening the resentment that these Creole populations felt and ultimately driving politics in Spanish America in a very similar direction towards independence. So uh, while I can't tell you definitively why Britain and Spain were unable to seize upon this opportunity to maintain their empires by fundamentally reorganizing their, their institutions, it seems to have been fairly consistent, impossible for them to imagine that kind of solution to the problem. In the case of British North America, there was also the post-seven-year war factor of just Britain having a larger empire in North America to deal with and more centers of power to take into, different different groups to take into account. Larger and, and more diverse. Uh, you now have a British empire that includes a substantial Catholic population. In Quebec. includes uh, newly enlarged indigenous populations. And that's, this is not the only area of the world that the British Empire is expanding. Britain is also expanding its holdings on the continent of Africa and in South Asia in this period. So Britain is, has no time for these quarrelsome North American colonists demanding relative autonomy. And in particular does not view them, you know, it's interesting in the kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, this notion of a kind of the Anglo nations of the world, the Anglosphere, as it's sometimes referred to, and, and of the special relationship between Britain and the United States, this kind of filial relationship where the United States is the kind of child of Britain, which has come into adulthood and is now the closest ally of Britain in the world, all these friendly feelings, these are later developments. So in this period, Britain is concerned uh, to rule these colonial populations, these Creole populations. And, and it's telling that Boris Johnson and Trump are the ultimate consummation. They are, indeed. Of Here this. we are. That's where it's gotten us. Uh, yeah, so the mindset was very different at the time. These kind of, uh, the exclusions of Creole populations from participation in the institutions that ruled either Britain itself, the metropole, or that ruled the British Empire were underpinned by... Uh, discourses about the inferiority, really, of colonial populations, and not just the indigenous and African-descended populations. We're kind of familiar with the, the racist discourses that underpinned uh, the exclusion of those populations, but there are these 
uh, theories of climate-driven degeneration and that would explain why it was problematic to include Creoles in uh, the institutions that ruled the British Empire, why Creoles were unfit to participate in that way, which uh, were commonly held. Because it was a corrosive natural environment. That's right. The, the humidity of the New World and the temperature of the New World was taken to have had decisive effects on their population, leading them to become less manly, uh, less rational, uh, and thus less capable of participating in politics, in ruling themselves. How did Anglo and Latin American elites respond to this attempt to other them as almost racially different from Europeans in the metropole? Uh, well, they responded furiously. And some of the kind of uh, <laughs> roots really of natural science in the in the Americas, in both British and Spanish America, are a- attempts to intervene in precisely this debate about what the effects of climate are upon the populations of the Europe of Europe and the and the Americas, uh, and you know you have really luminaries, uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson, were involved in precisely this debate to the point where I believe Thomas Jefferson at some point tried to carry the carcass of a moose across the Atlantic with him in order to demonstrate <laughs> that the Americas, that the New World, had species as large and impressive as the old world did as well i think but i think it sort of the moose uh sort of went to pieces on in route to uh to uh to europe and he was embarrassed by having arrived there with a kind of smelly and unimpressive (laughs) carcass (laughs) yeah refrigeration technology to prove racial parity was not you know up wasn't up to par indeed up to the task did, did that response in the Americas, did that shape what became this messianic belief present throughout the region and still very much an overwhelming force in U.S. political culture uh, of the new world's God-ordained greatness and destiny, world historical destiny? Uh, very much so. So the way I try to describe it is, you know, there's a distinction in, in Marxist social theory between a uh, class in itself and a class for itself, which kind of captures the distinction between a class which is defined by the, by the institutions that it lives under, that has interests in common, but is not necessarily conscious of those interests and is not acting politically on behalf of those interests. That's a class in itself, uh, whereas a class for itself is one that has become conscious of the institutions uh, that uh, decide the allotment of power and of wealth in their society and has begun to act upon their understanding of those interests of those institutions on behalf of their own interests and these debates about climatic determination of people's racial destiny and so on are an early point at which you begin to see a sort of creole class consciousness emerge an idea that we are a uh, community, a class that is similarly subjected to certain deprivations, exclusions, and that it behooves us to work together as a class to to pursue institutions that would allow us uh, more autonomy, more freedom, more prosperity. Uh, So those debates are early signs of this kind of Creole consciousness, which evolve uh, which strengthen over the course of these independence movements, and in particular in the aftermath of these independence movements, you begin to see Creoles arguing that 
not only is the new world not a site of kind of climate-driven degeneration, of absence of any kind of real culture, of backwardness, rather the new world is a promised land. Uh, it is a site in which the, all the problems of the old world, all the corruption of the old world can be transcended and overcome. Uh, and you begin to see these exceptionalist, uh, what we now call American exceptionalist uh, ideas emerge. And they were voiced not only in the United States, but in uh, Spanish America as well. You had many Spanish Americans uh, in this period begin to position themselves as Americans uh, and position their constitutions and position their approaches to foreign policy as advances upon what had been achieved to that point in Europe. We are not backward. We are, in fact, the vanguard of human social uh, development. You write that in all cases, Creole elites, quote, embarked on projects of external conquest and internal colonization, arguing that they could only assure the Americas independence by expanding their new state's frontiers and consolidating their control over often resistant populations. In retrospect, the current boundaries of American nation states seem so natural and normal to us. But in fact, in, in all of these cases, the current arrangements and size of states has been the result of conflicting efforts at conquest. And perhaps the most revealing such conflict was the Mexican-American War, after which what had been northern Mexico became the Western United States. It was, you write, quote, a contingent product of conflicts between rival Creole imperialists, each aspiring to hemispheric dominance. The U.S. conquest of northern Mexico was, no doubt, a viciously violent and racist land grab. But what the Mexican nation-state hoped to do in the region was not very different if one looks at it from, say, the perspective of indigenous people who lived there. How does putting Mexican and U.S. politics together at the center of the analysis force us to rethink what transpired, not in any way to lessen what the U.S. did, but to reframe the conflict beyond the confines of an imperialist U.S. and a victimized Mexican nation state? Yeah, no, I find that that this episode, one of the most kind of fascinating ones to rethink from the perspective that's opened up by treating these independence movements as Creole revolutions, as fundamentally similar in this uh, respect, rather than thinking of them kind of backwards uh, from the present dispositions of power, of territory, of wealth, uh, to, a try, to try to find the kind of origins of that. So, just to set the stage, when Mexico becomes independent in 1821, it does so as an entity that self-describes, describes itself as the empire of Mexico. And the territories that are claimed by the empire of Mexico in 1821 include not only the present-day territories of Mexico, but also the territories of the five states of Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica, and much of the Western United States. So it's an immense territory corresponding to this administrative unit, the Viceroyalty of New Spain, at the time that Mexico becomes independent. 
And you can trace debates, and I do so in particular because the figure who I focus on, Lucas Aleman, was at several points in his career held the office uh, that was called the Minister of the Interior and the Exterior. It's kind of uh, was a combined foreign policy and domestic policy post. And amongst his responsibilities was to produce each year. It was Minister of Relations. Minister of Relations, Interior and Exterior Relations. relations. That's right. Uh, So amongst his responsibilities was to produce a report each year on the activities of his ministry. And one of the primary activities that he was engaged in, because it was one of his major concerns, was to strengthen the hold of the Mexican state upon the northernmost territories of Mexico, which were very sparsely inhabited by people who understood themselves to be Mexicans. These were territories inhabited by indigenous people and primarily and uh, who did not... But with a bunch of Anglo settlers. Well, that's right. In particular, in. The, the territory of, of Texas, eventually Texas, uh, was bordered on the United States after the Louisiana Purchase. And you had these Anglo settlers continuously crossing over illegally. So these are illegal immigrants from the United States to Mexico. Uh, and they were crossing the border with uh, slaves. They were slaveholding they were bringing their slaves into the territory of Mexico and and using those slaves to uh, grow cotton for export. Where slavery was illegal. Well, that's right. Mexico had abolished slavery uh, in 1824, and but it was really very poorly enforced, the abolition of slavery, particularly in these northern territories. Uh, but amongst the efforts that Lucas Aleman undertook to consolidate Mexican hold on this territory... Uh, was to try to enforce more stringently the abolition of slavery within Mexico. And the primary opponents of that policy were precisely these Anglo settlers. So in a sense, we see a Mexican state that seems that pursues a policy that, that in retrospect looks admirable, uh, but it, it was really uh, pursued in some senses strategically in an effort to consolidate Mexican hold on this territory. And as you say, Mexico was was strongly concerned to hold on to its claims on this territory, including in the face of the indigenous populations that had lived there for for a much longer time and who felt no particular affiliation with the state of Mexico. So the state of Mexico is in this period also engaged in extensive military confrontations uh, surrounding its missions in this northern part of, of their territorial claims uh, as against these indigenous populations, in particular the Comanche empire, uh, which was itself uh, a a very formidable force and threatening Mexican ability to control that territory. And they were heirs to a Spanish mission system throughout the region that systematically and brutally subdued and did just unspeakable violence to indigenous people throughout the entire area. That's absolutely right. And, And the Mexican uh, state really tried to encourage further colonization. They were concerned especially about the increasingly rapid Anglo settlement of the area, but they were concerned also, as I say, about the uh, Comanche who, who substantially control the economy in this territory in this period. And so they undertake very conscious uh, efforts to stimulate uh, migration uh, and settlement by Uh, Not only Mexicans, but they have inducements, territorial uh, and financial inducements to 
European populations, in particular to, to populations from Catholic countries in Europe, uh, to migrate to Mexico and to begin to colonize the northern parts of Mexico, this very sparsely inhabited part of the territory. And of course, all of that colonization would come explicitly at the expense of the indigenous populations that inhabited that region. So you had a Mexican state that's engaged in a project of colonization. We can call it internal colonization since it's within territories that they already at least formally claimed as part of their state, an effort to displace the indigenous populations, an effort to forestall other attempts at colonization, in particular by Anglo settlers flowing from the United States. And it's really this conflict between these two settlement projects, one settlement project coming northward from uh, the more densely populated parts of Mexico towards its, its more sparsely populated parts, and another one coming westward from the more densely populated parts of the United States towards the sparsely populated western regions that come into conflict in this region. And it is efforts by these Anglo settlers to resist the Mexican state's efforts to enforce the abolition on slavery, eventually to uh, enforce various uh, restrictions on the weapons that can be uh, brought into these territories that inspires first the autonomist and then later the independence movement of Texas. And eventually it's the territory of Texas that uh, inspires the Mexican-American War which in the course of it sees the United States occupy Mexico City and impose really fairly ruinous terms upon the Mexican state. But I think... And it's a viciously violent war. That's right. It's a viciously... It is extremely violent war animated by some really uh, despicable racial ideologies. But I think it's very interesting. If you had asked somebody in 1800, what if the United States and Mexico went to war? what would happen? I don't think many people in 1800 would have said, oh, the United States will roll over the Mexican armies, will occupy Mexico City, and will impose whatever terms of peace it wants upon Mexico City. In 1800, New Spain was an immensely profitable colony, uh, was sending millions of dollars of silver and gold back to Spain every year while the colonies of British North America were nowhere near as economically productive and thus nowhere near as potentially potent as a military force. So the actual outcome of the Mexican-American War, while in retrospect, it kind of looks like the first inevitable stage of this growing menace of North American imperialism throughout the rest of the Americas, at the time, uh, it, was a, it, it was the contingent outcome of these two projects, these two projects of Creole colonization in which the United States uh, seized an advantage and for several reasons was able to, to press that advantage at the expense eventually of its fellow Creoles in Mexico. Stepping back to include the hemisphere as a whole, or not quite a whole, but more of it, all of these Creole elites wanted to build empires but but only the United States succeeded. Why did the U.S. settler colonialist project succeed where their Latin American counterparts failed? It's another one of the most interesting features that I'm able to bring out uh, to emphasize in this account, which is to say that one of the central features of 
of Creole constitutionalism and eventually of Creole foreign policy was the idea that these newly independent former colonies would be safer, would be more insulated against the threat posed of European reconquest to the extent that they were able to combine their efforts and combine their efforts in very specific ways, building institutions in order to organize that solidarity amongst the former colonies. And the institutions were called federal unions. So the United States itself is a federal union of former colonies that created a common government in no small part in order to organize its efforts to maintain its independence. And you had analogous efforts made actually throughout the Americas. So a federal union of former colonies was formed in Mexico uh, after independence. In 1824, Mexico reconstituted itself from an empire into a federal state. After Mexico lost its hold on Central America, the five present-day states of Central America formed a federal union of those five presently independent states. In Colombia, after Simón Bolívar managed to liberate the territories of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador, and at this time the territory of Colombia also included Panama, he formed a federal state, which we historians refer to as Gran Colombia, comprising all of those territories. And he com he contemplated... It was just Colombia then. That's right. He contemplated larger federal states, including other territories that he liberated, like Peru uh, and Bolivia, and even larger states that might have comprised all of Spanish America. He's considered an important early forerunner of pan Latin Americanism and even Pan-Americanism. And then in the southern part of the South American continent, a federal state was formed in Buenos Aires, uh, the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata, which comprised the federal state, the contemporary states of Argentina, Uruguay, and uh, Bolivia, uh, and Paraguay. So you had all these federal projects, all these efforts to create larger entities, larger unions of former colonies. And as you say, the only one that survives uh, is the United States. Uh, and again, this is one of those differences that if you look back, it tends to kind of look like fate, look like it had to be that way. Because of course, Venezuela... Call it manifest destiny. <laughs> right. Oh, yes. Or, and, but also, of course, Venezuela and Colombia are separate countries. Of course, Uruguay and Argentina are separate countries. Of course, Guatemala and El Salvador are separate countries. But at the time, there was not inevitable that it should be so. And, and in my account of what of the conflicts that drove the breakdown of these federal unions throughout Spanish America, uh, what I really try to emphasize is how prevalent those conflicts were actually within the United States as well. So you had partisan conflict analogous to the partisan conflict that erupts in the post-independence period throughout Spanish America, present in the United States. And you had contested elections analogous to the contested elections that often led to institutional breakdown in Spanish America in the United States. And so what I, the story I'm really trying to tell, the argument I'm trying to make, is that rather than an inevitable departing of ways, which has resulted quite naturally in the divisions that we find in the Western Hemisphere today, what you have is a series of very small and contingent differences, conflicts that could have gone one way and went another, which stack up on each other and eventually begin to kind of self-reinforce and gradually, gradually, over a much longer period of time than we're accustomed to think, produce the both the territorial divisions that we're familiar with today and the 
disparities, uh, the disparities in military power, uh, the disparities in economic uh, productivity, uh, the disparities in wealth that characterize the hemisphere today are all, I think, in some sense, products of these small differences in the nature of the conflicts that took place after independence. And had those conflicts gone a different way, had one or more of these fed, these experiments in federal union in, in Spanish America succeeded, or perhaps I think much more likely had the United States, the, the, pro, the project of the United States failed and broken apart into separate units. I think a lot of the features that we assume are natural and inevitable about the hemisphere today uh, would not look the way they in fact do. I'm Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is, without apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown. With an anti-abortion majority on the Supreme Court and several states attempting to outlaw abortion altogether, many activists are on the defensive, hoping to hold on to reproductive rights in a few places and cases. This spirited book shows how feminism can start winning again. Jenny Brown uncovers a century of legal abortion in the United States until 1873 recalls women's experiences in the illegal days, and shows how the women's liberation movement of the 1960s really won abortion rights. She draws inspiration and lessons from the radicals of the Red Stockings, the Army of Three, and the Jane Collective, putting together a roadmap for today's organizers from the black feminist argument for reproductive justice, the successful fight to make the morning after pill available over the counter, and the recent mass movement to repeal Ireland's abortion ban. Brown argues that politically conservative nonprofits have been setting the agenda, emphasizing rare tragic cases and relying on the rhetoric of choice and privacy. Instead, it is time to return to the fundamental ideas that won legal abortion in the first place. Women publicly telling the full truth of their own experience, demanding repeal of all abortion restrictions, and showing how abortion and birth control are the key demands in the struggle for women's freedom. Without apology, The Abortion Struggle Now by Jenny Brown. Out now from Verso Books. You just mentioned Gran Colombia, then just Colombia, which we haven't talked about very much. Obviously, all these Creole revolutionaries, they embraced expansion from the get-go, but it's not always seen that way in retrospect. In the case of South America, Bolivar's campaigns across the region were framed at the time and very much today as well as Liber- as a liberation struggle. How does the way that Bolivar's South America-wide military campaign is memorialized today, how does that hold up against what actually took place? Well, I when I talk about this and when I write about it in the book, I like to emphasize certain interactions with 
certain populations that Bolivar had. So there were some holdouts, some notorious holdouts, particularly in the Andean highlands uh, and in the Caribbean basin. Communities that did not sign on to Bolivar's project, that resisted incorporation into the federal states that he was creating, and that ultimately Bolivar forcibly conquered and integrated into the states he was creating. Uh, one of those communities is the, is the Caribbean community of Coro, which was a primarily Afro-descended population. Uh, and another is the Andean Highland community of Pasto, which was a primarily indigenous community. And in both cases, Bolivar, we have preserved amongst his papers addresses that he delivered uh, kind of as he was preparing to march his armies into these territories and forcibly liberate them, uh, forcibly integrate them into the federal states that he wished to create. And it's precisely that kind of language that he invokes this language of liberation. Uh, but they, what he's in fact uh, defending, the policy that he's in fact defending, is a policy of conquest and forcible assimilation. So how, can we, how does it hold up uh, and how does Bolivar hold up as this kind, of arca, uh, this kind of icon of emancipatory politics? I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. Bolivar had intensely objectionable views about the non-white populations of the territories that he liberated. Uh, he thought that if not their racial disposition, then they, the position that they had occupied under Spanish rule had deprived these populations of the virtues that they needed in order to uh, rule themselves. And he thought they were incapable of ruling themselves. And he thought that it was necessary for him to impose liberation upon them uh, it, to create a kind of tutelary despotism, uh, a regime he, that He was could, quite explicit that his concern was over a rule, majority rule by pardos, mixed race people, a pardocracia. That's right. He had, he, the, the term he invoked is, as you say, is pardocracia, rule by the pardo plurality of the territories that he was liberating. So he was concerned to forcibly integrate the territories inhabited by holdouts, and then he was concerned to impose constitutional structures on those territories that would limit the ability of those pluralities, and in some cases majorities, depending on how you aggregate the territory, to exert the inf influence over the, po over the laws and the politics in their region uh, that would have been proportional to their uh, presence in the population. On the other hand, Simon Bolivar is today invoked as an icon of an idea of a united Spanish America. He's particularly invoked or was particularly invoked uh, by the former president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, uh, who dedicated his uh, regime, who described his governing philosophy as a Bolivarian revolution, an explicit homage to Simón Bolívar. And I think that if Chavez was faithful to Bolívar in any sense, it was precisely in this commitment to an idea of a kind of pan-Latin American solidarity in the face of threats of imperial conquest and rule. And uh, Bolivar's efforts to organize that solidarity, to create institutions that would have made organizing that resistance more effective, 
were really, I think, very interesting. So in 18, beginning in about 1824, Simon Bolivar organized a congress of the uh, liberate of the free republics of uh, Spanish America that met in Panama and discussed possible measures for including measures including creating a common army and common sources of funding for that army. Measures involving limitations upon conflicts between the member states, compulsory arbitration of disputes. Now, there were dark sides to this project as well. Bolivar argued that together, the Spanish-American states would be more effective in suppressing slave revolts. Uh, they would be more effective in countering the numerical majority of indigenous populations in certain parts of Spanish America. But uh, this idea of a united Spanish America standing in the face of, in Bolivar's time, European threats of conquest, and for later thinkers, threats coming from the United States, has proven to be uh, an inspiring ideal, and Bolivar himself has proven to be an inspiring figure uh, for, for politicians and activists who uh, still believe that 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 mode of organizing resistance might be effective for Spanish America, uh, for Latin America, or for the global South uh, today. Yeah, you write, quote, Bolivar seems to anticipate an important strand of 20th century anti-colonial thinking, proposing collaboration amongst former colonies as a means of mutually assuring independence. Meanwhile, the United States has a hostile response to this sort of project of maybe Latin American unity, maybe Pan-American unity, under President John Quincy Adams. And you write that that response, quote, anticipates in both tone and substance what would, only in the late 20th century, come to be known as the Washington Consensus on International Trade. And John Quincy Adams was in office after Monroe, who, of course, put forward the Monroe Doctrine, in 1823, which was explicitly this kind of anti-imperial imperialism of the U.S. telling Europe to keep out of the region, but also that the U.S. would sort of be the dominant force within it. Given that this divergent perspective was emerging so soon after independence, what accounts for it? Well, some important transitions take place. So as I said, 1820, as you said, rather, in 1823, the United States, President of the United States, James Monroe, gives in a State of the Union address, lays out what later becomes known as the Monroe Doctrine. And what he says, essentially, is that the United States will look disfavorably upon any European effort to reestablish an imperial relationship with independent parts of the Americas. And Monroe's address at the time is, you know, greeted with horror in Europe, particularly in Britain. But the, the response that it meets is different in Spanish America. Many Spanish Americans take this statement of Monroe's to be a statement of solidarity, a statement of U.S. support for the project of independence throughout the hemisphere. And there are present in the United States in this period, emissaries from these Spanish-American republics, uh, several of whom are still engaged in conflicts with Spain, or who would like to pursue conflicts over territories that are still ruled by Spain in the Americas. And they take Monroe up essentially on his offer. They say, 
fantastic. Let's work together and let's put some bones on this project of inter-American solidarity uh, by kind of institutionalizing this relationship. And the, the vice president of Colombia, so this is vice president to Simon Bolivar, then decides to invite the United States to send representatives to this Congress in Panama that Simon Bolivar had organized of the independent Spanish-American republics. And this, but Bolivar didn't didn't like that because he already had this sort of uh, more skeptical view of U.S. intentions. Well, that's right. Bolivar had not intended to invite the United States. There are various reasons he gives as to why it would be inappropriate to invite the United States. He invokes some kind of culturalist arguments, linguistic arguments. But I think you're right to say that Bolivar had already a kind of skeptical view of the United States and a view in particular that including the United States in this larger federation that he was contemplating, uh, would uh, the United States would be able to fairly quickly dominate that federation. And uh, it wouldn't be a kind of a federation of equals, but rather a kind of relationship of patronage and client. So he argued against including the United States, uh, but his vice president kind of defied his preferences and sent this invitation, uh, which was received by the administration of James Monroe's successor, John Quincy Adams. And John Quincy Adams was eager to send a representative to Panama, uh, but in order to do so, he needed to appropriate funds for the trip from Congress. So he sends this request to Congress, and then this immense debate erupts in Congress over whether the United States should send representatives to Panama. And it was kind of an unanticipated debate. Uh, but the terms of it are very telling. So you begin to see in this period the rise of what's going to become the Democratic Party in the United States, uh, which in this period is a party of the uh, slave-owning South and is a party that is adopting a much more explicitly racial defense of slavery in this period, a much more explicitly racialized, kind of in terms that become more identifiable as uh, what we call racism uh, today. So this is what uh, in the literature sometimes gets called scientific racism. So a, a truly biological conception of racial difference and aptitude. And so you begin to see in this debates about the Panama Congress, this rising Democratic Party invoking those same arguments in order to argue against participation in this project of a Pan-American solidarity or even federation. Uh, and they denounce the project as it would be embarrassing to send Anglo-Saxon representatives to sit alongside not only mixed race, not only indigenous or Afro-descended populations from Spanish America, but precisely even the uh, Spanish-descended populations, which are now conceived of not as white, uh, but as Latin, as specifically Southern European and racially inferior. So one of the major drivers of this shift that we begin to see in precisely this moment on inter-American relations is the rise of this scientific racial discourse, which really drives a strong line of division across the New World uh, and instills in the United States this idea of racial superiority, not only vis-a-vis non-white populations, but even vis-a-vis -vis the Latin populations of Spanish America. So while I think the Monroe Doctrine does, there's a sort of proprietarial air to the Monroe Doctrine, to the relationship that's anticipated between the United States and Latin America, what becomes of the Monroe Doctrine, or rather what the Monroe Doctrine becomes, this 
argument on behalf of U.S. hegemony, U.S. dominance, regular U.S. intervention in Spanish America. Right to intervene in our own backyard idea. Exactly. That wasn't necessarily present from the outset, but it very quickly develops and it is fomented in no small part by the rise of these new discourses surrounding racial difference, uh, scientific racism in the United States. And you just said that this discourse emerges in part within the new party system that's emerging in the U.S., and I want to ask you to explain the rise of op- opposition parties across the Americas and why it is the institutional and political economic situation caused opposition elites to d- diverge from Hamilton, Aleman, and Bolivar. Because your book takes these three supporters of centralized rule as emblematic of Creole elites. What then do you make of the anti-centralization opposition that existed throughout the hemisphere, were they another force within Creole revolutionary politics or did they represent the outcome of contradictions that only fully emerged after independence? Well, this is a story that I know another one of your guests, Aziz Rana, has told as well. But it's a story that has to do with I mean, if you if you trace, we talked about the factors that drove the independence movement in not only the United States but across the Americas, and, pre- and specifically efforts by the empires to impose more stringent oversight of their colonies, and efforts that sometimes resulted in undermining the local superiority of Creoles vis-a-vis indigenous and Afro-descended populations in these colonies, and how that that at those efforts and those policies by the imperial states really drove the resentment that inspired in no small part these independence movements and what you had in the aftermath of the independence movements is almost a replaying of that history so that the exigencies of the moment the threat that these states uh, were exposed to of european conquest or of internal disorder caused by the uh, resistance of indigenous or Afro-descended populations, in a sense, causes these Creole elites, these elites who are now now ensconced in national governments, to repeat history. Uh, So they impose these constitutional structures that centralize authority in federal states, that centralize authority in executives vis-a-vis legislative branches of government. And one of the byproducts is to diminish the autonomy and at times the local superiority of Creole elites within these new national states. And this occurs in the United States, but it also occurs throughout the hemisphere. So you had efforts, as I said, for example, by the Mexican state to enforce the abolition of slavery throughout its territory. That is a policy that alienates not only Anglo settlers, but also elites in these northern Mexican territories who are making a mint at this point, selling land uh, to Anglo settlers. And the first vice president of Texas, of in, uh, Texas as the independent nation, is a Mexican Creole elite. That's absolutely right. So you have the similar processes taking place throughout Spanish America. The efforts of these states to consolidate their control over these territories that they have inherited leads to alienation of local elites who now feel their position being threatened by the new national governments that have been created in the aftermath of the independence movements. And the first opposition parties in the United States, in Mexico, in Colombia, and in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, in this period, are all these, are all of a similar kind. They are all these uh, regional, 
federalist and legislative supremacist uh, parties who argue that the independence movements have been betrayed, that these new national states are just like the old empires, but maybe worse. And worst of all, they are attempting to impose upon our relationships with indigenous uh, and with Afro-descended populations. So just like in the United States, where you have a figure like Andrew Jackson arise, who kind of came to prominence fighting indigenous populations throughout the southeastern United States, in Argentina, you have both the the Uruguayan independence movement and the major federalist uh, opposition party are led by former Indian fighters. So you have these similar dynamics driving the politics of partisan competition in all of these states. And these opposition parties presenting themselves as the true heirs to the principles of the independence movements, which have been betrayed by the governments in power. And it must be said, the the Creole elites who have installed themselves in national governments respond to these threats to their authority in ways that are usually very ineffective. They attempt to strengthen even more the powers of the federal governments. They attempt to abridge uh, civil liberties that had been ensconced in, competi- in constitutions throughout the hemisphere. Uh, like the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts in the U.S. That's right. Uh, and this really only sort of raises the stakes of the conflict and makes it almost inevitable that deep partisan conflict will only deepen in these contexts. Uh, So you uh, have these similar dynamics driving the rise of opposition parties and then the deepening of partisan conflict throughout the Americas uh, to the point where almost all of the Americas are on the brink of civil war within a few decades of their independence. Uh, And as I said, it's really very small differences that result in uh, the breakdown of these federal unions throughout much of Spanish America, precisely in these partisan conflicts that evolve, uh, and that don't produce that same result in the United States. Uh, but those very small differences end up having very large consequences uh, with the passage of time. Stepping back a, a little further in the U.S. context, what were the anti-democratic features of the U.S. Constitution that ultimately won the support of centralizers like Hamilton? And how can we make better sense of how those things operate today by understanding the context within which they emerged? We, we talk about the separation of powers all the time in the United States, but what is revealed or what can be revealed by studying precisely what powers they were meant to separate? Mm. So the separation of powers in the United States refers to the division of power between the three branches of the federal government, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. And I think it's a term that should also be used to describe the division of the legislative branch of the United States into two separate houses, bicameralism, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And that's an idea with a long lineage in European intellectual history, and its lineage is traceable to an idea called the mixed constitution, which is first described kind of vaguely in Aristotle, receives a lot of refinement in the uh, uh, Florentine republicanism, and then has its kind of classical expression, uh, both in the Roman uh, uh, Republic and then later in the the British Constitution, which has separate representation for different classes of society in the two houses of the legislature, the House of Commons and uh, the House of Lords. So the United States 
and political thinkers throughout the Americas, uh, when they are designing constitutions, have this example before them. And the reason it's so attractive to them is because even though they do not have societies that are, that are divided by quite the same divisions as these European societies were, we do not have a hereditary nobility as against uh, a commoners that receive separate representation in the United States. But nonetheless, we have intensely divided societies and societies that are divided in part along racial lines. And so this solution of the mixed constitution as a means of balancing out a society uh, that is intensely divided uh, and it has divisions with separate interests. And this is a constitution that has been able to produce some kind of balance, some kind of equilibrium uh, in other contexts was a uh, example that many constitution designers in the Americas uh, respected and attempted to build into their own constitution. So we find bicameralism is a very common feature of constitutions written after independence. And so is the separation between the legislative and the executive branch. And the idea specifically that just as in the British system, the king, the executive, acts as a sort of check upon the excessively democratic tendencies of the popularly elected, although not that popularly elected, parliament in this period. So was uh, the president, the institution of the presidency, meant to act as a check upon uh, the popularly elected legislative branches. And so was the Senate meant to act as a check upon the popularly elected House of Representatives. Uh, and, and many of these people wanted uh, life terms for the presidency. They really wanted it to look even more like a monarchy. That's absolutely right. So Alexander Hamilton famously uh, gave a six-hour-long speech outlining a plan of government <laughs> at the Constitutional Convention uh, in which he called for a monarch, for a president uh, to be elected, but then to serve a life term. Uh, and it, this is a, a point that is usually used to demarcate Hamilton's absolute alienation from reality in the context of the American uh, independence movement, his falling way outside the mainstream. But that charge is wrong on two counts. For one reason, it's an idea that found quite a lot of support within the Constitutional Convention. Several states. The Virginia delegation, delegation voted for it. That's right, including James Madison. Uh, so it found a lot of support within the Constitutional Convention of the United States, and it finds analogous projects throughout the Americas. So Haiti adopts a lifetime presidency, uh, and Simon Bolivar famously incorporated a lifetime presidency into the Constitution that he wrote first for Bolivia. Uh, and then tried to impose upon uh, the rest of Andean South America. So this idea of and who pointed to Haiti to legitimate it? That's right. He 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 pointed to Haiti as the exemplar of the success of this kind of institution, in particular at being able to bring order to a post-colonial society that was kind of chaotically thrown into the midst of these conflicts amongst colonial societies divided by along racial lines by colonial rule. So this explicitly anti-democratic institution, this, this adapt, this elective monarchy, uh, as Hamilton famously described it, uh, was meant to check the, uh, to check and balance the more popularly elected branches of government and thereby to preserve the social position, uh, and the privilege of these Creole elites that were the protagonists of these independence movements after independence had been won. A core thing here is that the this idea of the people as we understand it today is not something they believed in. They believed in different social orders and all believed that democracy 
that's kind of raw democracy had to be checked by a neutral party and that it was some form of elite rule that was inherently more neutral and thus able to pursue the true public interest. This is something that was shared across all three of the thinkers that you're looking at. That's right. So the idea was that our societies are riven by these hierarchical distinctions. And how do you have in a society riven by hierarchical distinctions a government that pursues the common interest that rules in favor in the interests of all rather than in the interests of one particular segment of society? And as I said, that was a problem in, uh, in political thought that was traceable to Aristotle. He grappled with precisely this problem uh, in the context of the ancient Greek city-states. Uh, and the mixed constitution is thought of as a uh, solution to this problem because it gives separate representation to the different classes of society and then balances in later iterations, balances the, uh, the few and the many by uh, giving power to the one, namely the king, who could be a kind of neutral arbiter between the divided interests of society and serve both their interests without allowing either to pursue their interests exclusively. And you can see in the Americas, you can just see in these texts, these thinkers who were steeped in this tradition, who were steeped in these ideas, grappling with how can we apply that solution to our own societies? We don't have the few and the many in the same senses that these European societies did. We can't have a king necessarily because the idea is just going to be too unpopular. How could we adapt these solutions to our context? Uh, and I, I trace several efforts to do so, uh, the, Amer the U.S. Constitution being one, but Simon Bolivar's Constitution for Bolivia being another, uh, which, as I said, in, had not only a bicameral, but a tricameral legislation, including a, a one branch of which held its positions for life and a lifetime presidency. Uh, and there are uh, similar plans, uh, not only proposed, but actually put into place in Mexico. Uh, there are several constitutions that incorporated houses that were distinguished by reference to the property owned by uh, uh, its electors or the property elect, uh, in order to vote for representatives, you had to have a certain amount of property. So all these efforts to adapt the constitutional models of the old world to solve the problems that were present in the new world. And you in these convergences result, these similar institutions, in particular, presidentialism as a way of dividing power between branches. This really casts in a revealing light today's institution fetishizing radical centrists, people like Yasha Munk and company, who, who maybe just implicitly but still, I think very much emphatically, believe that there are people of a certain standing who can provide a neutral check to unbridled popular power. I think there's a similar worry underpinning those arguments and perhaps thus a kind of non-random convergence upon similar institutional mechanisms, a grasping for neutrality, uh, efforts to try to incorporate some kind of neutrality or, or to make a claim on neutrality. I always think, though, we have to be cautious, though, in thinking about what purposes institution can serve. When we think about that, we cannot strictly argue that the purposes that institutions can serve are determined entirely by the institutions, by, by the purposes that they did serve. That is to say, right. origins of institutions, I don't think, entirely determine their potential over time. So several of the institutions that we're discussing now, 
centralism as opposed to federalism, even presidentialism as opposed to parliamentarism, to legislative supremacy, have at various points in U.S. history and in the history of the other nations of the Americas uh, served purposes uh, different from and even contrary to the purposes that the uh, their Creole designers intended them to serve. Progressive purposes. Indeed, right. Uh, so I, I don't think we can say that the origins of these institutions determine their their functions, but I do think that knowing more about their origins is a good place to start when we think about their functions so that we can, if you understand what they were instituted to do, we can understand at least one thing that they could be doing now and we can think about ways to alleviate, to prevent them from doing the same thing now that they did when they were originally designed. You close your book, and I hate to spoil, have this spoiler be like literally the last lines of your book, but they, it's important. It, it, it prompts an important question for me. Yeah, with these lines, quote, the ideology of the Creole Revolution, for all its internal contradictions, emancipated the New World once. Perhaps it can still inspire those who would seek to emancipate it once again. The Latin American left, as we've discussed, has found a usable past in this history, but the U.S. left, at least in recent decades, by and large, has not, given how ugly and brutal and genocidal it all is. What do you make of that divergence, and what inspiration might we hope to take? It's a great question, really a deep question. I mean, I think much of it has to do with the sort of some of the subsequent history we were talking about, how the how new racial discourses in the United States foreclose any possibility of solidarity with Latin America, with Spanish America, and eventually underpin uh, imperial projects undertaken by the United States in Spanish America, imperial projects that often described Spanish Americans of all racial backgrounds as similarly inferior, as similarly incapable of self-rule and thus properly subjected to United States rule, intervention, or or kind of tutelage from afar. I think that experience drove in Latin America a certain uh, developments of uh, kind of solidarity, uh, which at times denied the racial divisions that had animated the independence movements. So these independence movements and figures like Simón Bolívar were taken up as icons and kind of re- and the problematic views that somebody like Simón Bolívar had about Pardos in Venezuela are kind of uh, cleansed out of that story so that so that Bolívar can more effectively uh, serve this purpose as this icon of a centralizing militaristic, uh, but very distinctly left-wing, anti-racist movements in Latin America. So, whereas in the United States, being at the kind of heart of this imperial project throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, that kind of uh, reckoning and effort to use these figures doesn't quite occur in the same way. It's not to say that it doesn't occur. Obviously, figures get rehabilitated, the idea that, and, and the, the relation of Thomas Jefferson, for example, to slavery, and the connection between his ideas about inalienable rights and his own ownership of human beings is a something that some people have sought to uh, minimize in order to lift Jefferson up as a kind of icon of egalitarianism, of, of liberty. But the desire to forge those 
cross racial bonds in order to resist an external enemy was never as strong in the United States as it ended up being in Latin America. So I think that explains to some degree. Because uh, <laughs> we difference. were busy being everyone else's external enemy. That's right. The United States was the external enemy and no longer <laughs> had to form cross racial uh no, didn't wasn't forced as in Latin America to form these cross-racial coalitions to oppose an external enemy. And then maybe Mexico is perhaps the most unusual case study in how popular memory creates a usual past by reading oppressed people back into the Creole-led independence struggles because Mexican Independence Day is celebrated on September 15th, which marks the anniversary of an 1810 indigenous and mestizo uprising against the Spanish led by the Creole priests Miguel Hidalgo and Jose Maria Morelos, but that's not when or how Mexico gained independence at all. It, like those who actually established independence in 1821 were Creole elites with a fundamentally different politics. That's from right. Those to Hidalgo. That's right. And what's so fascinating is how that history has been such a matter of debate in Mexican politics ever since it occurred. So you know, the real kind of apostatization of Hidalgo and Morelos occurs in the Mexican Revolution, in the period of the Mexican Revolution, namely the, the 20th century Mexican Revolution, not the independence movement. And uh, they are raised to this status as the, the padres fundadores, the founding fathers of Mexico in the context of a revolution that was trying to revise the social racial and economic order of the country uh, and to invoke them precisely, as you said, as a kind of usable past. But that was met with uh, intense criticism from more uh, conservative elements of society that insisted upon the, uh, that this is an inaccurate depiction of uh, the independence uh, movement. Um, so yes, in Mexico, that history is intensely politicized and uh, reflected precisely in the Independence Day celebrations, which uh, celebrate an aspect and in a sense fail to confront uh, the complexities uh, of the Mexican independence process. And the, and the continued dominance of Creole elites that prevails to this day. That's right. In Mexico. By celebrating, a, it's complicated because on the one hand, it gives so much bolsters kind of progressive and radical left forces in Mexico throughout Mexican history. But on the other hand, by celebrating a decolonization, a kind of indigenous victory over settler colonialism that never happened, it sort of invisibilizes present day power dynamics. Well, I think that's absolutely right. And it's just a reflection of the intensely fraught dynamics of usable pasts in the Americas as a whole. You have a similar dynamic uh, uh, in Cuba surrounding racial order and the extent to which the Cuban independence movement, whose icon is Jose Marti, who is intensely anti-imperialist and in a sense anti-racist, but who was critical of efforts by Afro-Caribbean, uh, by Afro-Cuban actors to organize separately on behalf of Afro-Cuban equality. Uh, he wanted a, Cu a unified Cuban nationalist movement fighting Spanish imperialism and later U.S. incursions. And, and it's claimed uh, by uh, up to the Cuban Revolution and afterwards that racial divisions in Cuba have been eliminated, that our, our leaders have been consistently anti-racist, and this is not a problem here. 
Although you still have Afro-Cuban activists who claim, who argue with good evidence that this is not a fair depiction of the society that they live in, a society that is still where people's chances are, are, are determined in no small part by their uh, race. Uh, so yes, uh, throughout the Americas, in no small part because of the ways we became independent, because our independence movements were Creole revolutions, the question of whether these leaders can be inspirations, whether their ideas can be usable, and whether their examples can be inspiring uh, is an intensely fraught one. Uh, but it's one, I think, that by learning more about them, and in particular by uh, thinking about them comparatively in ways that help us sort out the structural features of the societies that led them to think and act in the ways that they did, can help us work through that critical project of uh, discovering what aspects of our past are usable, what aspects are will require extensive critique before they can become usable, and which aspects are, are better to be kind of reviled and uh, used as uh, lessons of, uh, of history that we would do better not to repeat. Which statues need to be torn down? Exactly. Which statues need to be torn down? Which ones can serve as kind of partial uh, teaching tools, teachable moments, uh, and which ones are deserving of uh, the veneration that they receive. You don't quite put it like this, but you do seem to argue with good evidence that Hamilton, Bolivar, and Aleman were right, not not morally, but in terms of real politique, in the sense that the form of government they advocated as the only guarantor of power and stability was proven correct by the United States becoming an empire to which fragmented Latin American states became subjected. Is there some lesson to be drawn here about how power operates that might be useful for a radical democratic and egalitarian political project rather than an imperial one? Or is is it just sort of a depressing um, object lesson? Well, I think the, the the root idea that can perhaps be built upon is that efforts not just to invoke but to institutionalize lines of solidarity in opposition to imperial rule, perhaps in opposition to uh, the very kind of modern forms of imperial rule that exist in the world today, are more likely to be effective. So the Federal Union of the United States was precisely an institutionalized solidarity amongst the former British colonies of North America. Uh, and it's precisely that institutionalized solidarity that was lost when those federal unionist projects failed in Spanish America. Uh, so while Spanish Americans did not stop thinking of themselves as exposed to common threats and perhaps involved in common in a common project pursuing common ideals, they did lose the institutional ties that allowed them to organize those projects uh, more effectively. And the persistence of those institutional ties in the United States, I think, as you say, were from a real politique perspective, very effective. Uh, the United States was able to industrialize as rapidly as it did, was able to project power as extensively as it did, and essentially is able to become the superpower that it is uh, because its federal state survived. So I think the root idea there of institutionalized solidarity is definitely one that can be usefully uh, built upon. The question is, as you say, can it be invoked, can it be pursued without 
these concomitant exclusions, uh, suppressions, oppressions that it involved in the past. My last question is the the idea for your book occurred to you while you were surfing up and down the Pacific coast of the <laughs> Americas. That's right. And I knew you personally as a surfer <laughs> well before you became a credentialed political scientist. And I've, I, I really liked the, these lines in your acknowledgement because I've always been very attracted to Pan-Americanism as a politics for the United States as – an antidote to American, or as I think we should emphasize in this case, United Statesian exceptionalism, mm-hmm. something that might substitute a cross-border solidarity from below for the sort of predatory nationalism that has long guided the U.S. approach to our neighbors to the South. What do you see as as the possible politics of Pan-Americanism? On the surfing question, I'll say that it's uh, only because I have such deep respect for you as a uh, as a podcaster and a critic that I'm here speaking to you today. We're being interviewed on October 11th, and there's currently 10-foot waves on the Jersey Shore. So, uh, uh, I'm honored. Yeah, good. And, and, uh, I'm a, and sorry. <laughs> um, but as to Pan-Americanism, I mean, I think that the challenges that we confront in the world today, that the left confronts in the world today, challenges surrounding the democratization of production that extends not just across borders, but around the world, supply chains that circle the world, problems surrounding migration that crosses borders and surrounds the world, problems surrounding climate change that Uh, inherently cross borders and surround the world. These are not problems that the left is ever going to be able to effectively address, I think, without a politics that itself crosses borders and without institutions that cross borders. So I think Pan-Americanism can be an important part of a of a global politics that shouldn't ignore local activities, but should see itself as a way of linking local activities coordinating local activities, drawing strength from the coordination of local activities, activism, uh, in pursuit uh, of efforts to address problems that cannot, at the end of the day, cannot really just be addressed locally, uh, that require global solutions. So Pan-Americanism, it strikes me, would be a manifestly superior way of thinking about questions about migration in the Americas today, rather than having unilateral policies imposed by uh, the United States that have profound effects upon the life chances uh, of people throughout the Americas, uh, particularly throughout North America and into Central America, uh, some kind of pan-American institutions would be much fairer ways, it strikes me, to debate those kinds of policies. Pan-American institutions, as I said, we are going to need pan-American solutions to water scarcity and extraction of gas, uh, of fossil fuels and other resources. Uh, So all of these issues are affected by policies, and to the extent that those policies can be decided upon by institutions that are able to aggregate and consider the views of people across these borders whose interests are profoundly affected by them, I think they would be much more fairly and effectively dealt with at those higher levels of aggregation. Well, Joshua Simon, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. 
Joshua Simon is a professor of political science at Columbia University and the author of The Ideology of Creole Revolution, Imperialism and Independence in American and Latin American Political Thought. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that, People make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communication coordinator is Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews, we have come to believe, we've been told at least, introduce us to new listeners. But what really truly does that is you just telling people that you like the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly donation to help keep this thing up and running strong. <laughs>